Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit Cora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words from scripture from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the Gerasenes land, which is across the lake from Galilee. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time, he had lived among the tombs, naked and homeless. When he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him. Then he shouted, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had taken possession of him, so he would be bound with leg irons and chains and placed under guard. But he would break his restraints and the demon would force him into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had entered him. They pleaded with him not to order them to go back into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission and the demons left the man and entered the pigs. The herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of scripture. This is the first time I've ever worn a beach shirt to preach in, and I've never preached from a boat before. But today we bring to a close our series of sermons on Jesus at the Lake, our summer revival. And I just want to remind you, we started a couple of weeks ago with Jesus stepping into Simon Peter's boat and then Jesus calling Simon to fish for people. Then the last week, we talked about the disciples on a boat just like this in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the night, terrified. And Jesus comes walking on the water to them and climbs into the boat and calms the wind and the waves. And today we're going to focus on Jesus taking the boat across the Sea of Galilee to a cemetery. And we're going to find what Jesus does there is absolutely remarkable. So I'm going to climb out of the boat so I can finish preaching the message. And as I do that, I want to just share with you, when I go to the Lake of the Ozarks, uh, and which Levon and I have been doing for 18 years, when we go to the Lake of the Ozarks, I am uh, every morning taking a walk, almost every morning. So I'll walk about three miles, I'll power walk, and as I'm walking down the gravel roads, through the trees, uh, my journey, my route every day takes me to a cemetery. And I go by there twice every day, once on the beginning of the route and once as I'm coming back. And that cemetery always reminds me 
of the story we have before us today. I thought you might enjoy seeing just a little bit of the cemetery that I stop by every day on my walk. children buried in that cemetery, and uh, most of them were buried before the Lake of the Ozarks was even conceived of. It was, uh, the cemetery goes back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, and there was a lot of children who died. About 30% of all deaths in America at that time were children under the age of five due to pneumonia and, and bacterial infections in the, in the intestines and, and tuberculosis. Fortunately, we don't see that today. But that cemetery, whenever I walk through there, I stop and I remember these families and the grief and the pain that they experienced. I think about them. And I also think about the story we have before us today about the demon-possessed man who lived in Gergesa or Geressa or Gadara. We'll find out more about that in a moment. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. This story is found in Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel and also in Matthew's gospel. And as we learn, turn to Luke chapter 8, I want you to be able to read these words. Luke 8, 28, Jesus and his disciples sailed to the land of the Gerasenes. Now, some ancient copies of Luke's gospel say not Gerasenes, but they line up with Matthew's gospel, which says the Gadarenes, and some of them actually say they're Gergesenes. And I want to share, you, share with you why these different, uh, maybe the confusion on where exactly this was. So the confusion comes because Geressa and Gadara are both towns that are located further to the south and east, one five miles southeast, one 30 miles southeast from the Sea of Galilee. But Gergesa is a town that's located right, a village that was located right on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. So it seems likely that Jesus, as some of the early manuscripts from Luke's gospel say, was probably traveling by boat with his disciples from Capernaum to Gergesa. It would have taken about two hours to make that journey. And if you think about that, two hours, if you're driving in the interstate, that's 140 to 150 miles. I want you to catch this. Jesus travels 140 to 150 miles. If he were traveling on the interstate today, two hours to go find one man that he's probably never met before, but that he's heard about who is hurting and broken. This is really, really important. Jesus could have gone anywhere on the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he goes to the side where the Gentiles are. He finds a man who likely wasn't a Jew. He finds a man who's living among the tombs, who's homeless, who is broken, and Jesus has intentionally gone to find him. I love this about Jesus, that he has a heart for this man. He's heard somewhere along the way about this man who the people in the town are afraid of, who lives homeless and alone, howling in the night, hurting himself. Maybe God has heard the prayers of this man when he cried out and shrieked to God. Maybe he sent Jesus intentionally because he's heard the prayers of this man who is homeless, mentally ill, demon-possessed, and that's the story we're going to focus on today in this message. I want you to go ahead and turn in your, in your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 8. And beginning with verse 27, we, see, we read these words. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. So Jesus has traveled two hours to this town. And, and uh, the man, when Jesus gets out of the boat, the man comes to meet Jesus. He was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time, he had lived among the tombs naked and homeless. Now, Mark tells us a little bit more about the man. Mark chapter five, verses three through five. This man lived among the tombs and no one was strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He had been secured many times with leg irons and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones. 
Do you, do you feel the agony of this man, the anguish of this man in the hillsides, howling, cutting himself in such agony? Now, what led the people of town to try to chain him up? I mean, the fact that they had put chains on him and that he'd broken, you know, smashed the chains, was now living outside of town among the tombs. Why did they try to chain him up? And the reality was they were likely afraid of him. And it's not hard to picture why they were afraid of him and the kind of man this man was. If you've ever been, I mean, Kansas City, you'll see this, but certainly in any big city, if you're in the heart of the city, you're going to find people who sound an awful lot like this man, people who are talking to themselves, people who are sometimes shouting at enemies that you can't see, people who are often homeless, living on benches, people who carry all their possessions with them in a garbage bag or maybe a grocery, a grocery cart, and, and people who sometimes have self-harmed. Some of them are addicted. Some of them are simply afflicted. Some of them are suffering from severe mental illness, and most of them are homeless who are crying out like this. And when we look at a man like this, we can understand why certain people would have felt afraid. They would have felt threatened by this man. And so they tried to chain him up. It's interesting, you know, in the history of humankind, there came a period of time where you would find people like this. They've always been there and they were committed to what were called lunatic asylums, what were called insane asylums. They were committed to later state hospitals. And, and when they were committed there, it was partly because hopefully people were trying to get help for them, but it was also because the people were afraid of these people. I think back when I think of this man being chained, and by the way, uh, when, I, when you look at various places where there's homeless populations, in California, who has the largest home, homeless population in America, 25 to 30% of the people there are mentally ill. Were they, uh, were they mentally ill when they became homeless? Did becoming homeless actually contribute to their mental, Ill, mental illness? We don't know, but there is a connection here. And so when you go back to the 1700s, actually the 1600s, in Paris, there was a asylum that was created for women who uh, were either impoverished or who were sick or who were mentally ill. And, uh, and in this place, it was actually a quite beautiful place to begin with and, and very, you know, created out of compassion. But later on, it changed and it began to be a place of really terror for people. And so women were actually kept in chains. The mentally ill women were kept in chains in this place. And I think back to this man, and it wasn't until 1795 that, that the, uh, in the French Revolution that the women were ordered to be released from their chains in this prison. The, the uh, number one diagnosis for them was hysteria. They were said to be mad. They were said to have the, the illness of hysteria. The word hysteria comes from the word womb. And at that time, people thought that, that this problem, this mental illness was a result of problems with the womb. And so they removed the womb from the woman that was called a hysterectomy to remove the hysteria from the woman. And that might change her. Of course, there were all kinds of terrible things that were done to people in the hospital during that period of time. The demon possession, addiction, mental illness, homelessness, hopeless causes, Whatever it was that was going on with this man, I want you to notice that Jesus traveled two hours to find this man. He traveled two hours to be with this man, to care for this man. I love that about Jesus. All right, so let's talk about demons for a moment. I don't deny the existence of demons. I don't deny that, that there are uh, powers of darkness and the demonic that are around. So we know that that's something scripture talks about. But I do want us to think carefully about this for a few moments. In Jesus' day, there were various views of demons. Uh, there were some who believed that they were spirits of the dead who were not properly buried or spirits of the dead who had been, you know, suffered a violent death. And so they roamed the earth and, and, they, and they tormented people. There were some who saw them as fallen angels and some saw them perhaps as both. Some saw them as sort of lesser gods that were, that were tools or instruments of the dark side. And so there were a variety of ways that people thought about them. They were thought to live in the deserts, in the deserted places and among the tombs. 
Now, in addition to that, we also find that certain illnesses that couldn't be diagnosed by a doctor were said to be caused by these demons. So the demons could afflict somebody with fevers, with chills, uh, epilepsy and seizures were thought to be caused by demons at that time. Blindness and muteness in the gospels is attributed to demons. Likewise, depression and anxiety were thought to be a result of demons afflicting somebody. We see that in King Saul in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Temptations, of course, doesn't surprise us. Those were the whispers, the voices that people would hear in their mind were the whispers of the demons trying to tempt them to do the things they knew they should not do. And we've all heard those kind of voices, that temptation. And so that was attributed to demons or, you know, in our modern time, we think of an angel sitting on one shoulder and a demon sitting on the other shoulder. And, you know, one trying to lead us to do the right thing and one trying to lead us to do the wrong thing. And, and we, we look at that as a way of talking about the struggle inside of our own souls and our minds about which path we're going to take, the right path or the wrong path. Now, one thing to be cautious about, though, is that often people would attribute to, you know, illnesses or other things to demons when probably that wasn't the actual cause. And sometimes people would look at somebody who they disagreed with or someone who was doing things that, that they didn't like or maybe their opponents, and they would say that they had a demon. And so in the Gospels, we find in Matthew eleven eighteen 18, that the religious leaders claimed that John the Baptist had a demon. And then we read in Matthew 12, 24, the religious leaders claimed that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the chief of the demons himself, Beelzebub. And then in John's Gospel, three times in John 7, 20, John 8, 48, and John 10, 20, Jesus was said to be demon-possessed. And so people could kind of throw around this banter about somebody having demons or being demon-possessed very carelessly. And of course, they did that about Jesus and John the Baptist. But in this story, we're meant to see something really clear. We're meant to see the power differential between Jesus and John the Baptist. Actually, between Jesus and the demons, not John the Baptist. Between Jesus and the demons. And, and so Mark tells us of this man living among the tombs, and he says, no one was tough enough to control him. But I want to see what happens when Jesus steps out of the boat on the shoreline. So Jesus comes, he steps out of the boat on the shoreline, and we read this. When he saw Jesus, when the demon saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him. Then he shouted, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. You just can't miss this. That the demons, when they saw Jesus, they were terrified. They shook. They were afraid. This is just, it's not even a contest when it comes to Jesus and the demons. So many times we find ourselves afraid of the dark side. And, you know, I don't want any part of the dark side. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But what I know is that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of darkness. The power of light overcomes the power of darkness. God's power is greater than Satan's power. It's not like some religions who think that they're co-equal powers of light and darkness. No, the light is infinitely stronger than the darkness. And that's what we find consistently in the gospels. I find it interesting that the devil had to acknowledge that Jesus was the son of the most high. I mean, they have to confess, you know, what other people don't yet understand who Jesus is. And then they beg for mercy from Jesus. At one point, Jesus asks this man, actually the demons within him, he asks this question, what is your name? And the demon, so this is heightening the sense of the power of Jesus against the power of darkness. And the demon answers, legion is my name because we are many. Now that might've been a little political satire at the same time, but this wasn't one puny little demon. This was a legion of demons. A legion was the, was the military unit, the largest military unit of the Roman Empire. And at the time that Mark was writing his gospel, which then Matthew and Luke take their cues from, when he was writing his gospel, there were four Roman legions that had marched into the Holy Land to put down the Jewish revolt, including the 10th Roman legion, which was stationed not far from the Holy Land. And so this is a, a legion is 5,000, 5,500 to 6,500 soldiers. If this is a legion of demons, it's a powerful cohort of demons 
And yet they shake with fear. All of them shake with fear in the presence of Jesus. We got to see this and understand this. Listen to what happens next in, in Luke 8, 31 through 33. They pleaded with him. So all of these demons pleaded with Jesus not to order them to go back into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And Jesus gave them permission. And the demons left the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. I, I love this. Once more, we see the demons begging Jesus. Twice in the story, they beg Jesus. And Jesus sort of shows mercy to them. And Jesus knows what's gonna happen. These, these demons apparently weren't smart enough to realize that when they infested pigs, those pigs wouldn't know what to do with it. And they run you know, headfirst down the, the cliff or down the hillside and into the Sea of Galilee. At that time, the seashore was a little closer to this place than it is today. But, but uh, you know, they didn't have that understanding. And the idea is that when they were drowned with the pigs, they were really drowned and they were sent back to the abyss. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the, the middle of the Sea of Galilee, nobody knew how deep it was in Jesus' day. And they thought down at the bottom of that was a portal going back to the abyss, these demons were sent straight back to hell where they had come from. And Jesus, of course, had outsmarted them. All he had to do was say a word and they fled. Now it's clear throughout the Bible again that God's power is infinitely stronger than the power of darkness. So I wanna share with you just a couple of, of passages. First Peter 5.8 says this, your accuser, the devil, is on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And then James 4, 7 says this, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will run away from you. I mean, this isn't like you have to be worried about this. You have the power of Christ in you. When you follow Christ, when you put your trust in him, when you allow his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, then you have a greater power than the power at work in the forces of darkness. There's just no competition here. I have had and shared with some of you in the past on several occasions, I've had people come to me and, and believe that they were being afflicted by demons. Usually it happens at night. Uh, sometimes they start as dreams and then things they actually see with their eyes or things that they experience. And you know, when this happens, like, you know, I think, okay, this may very well be something demonic, but it may also be something else. And so I want you to go see your doctor. I want you to get checked out. I want your blood work to be checked out. And I'm gonna tell you what to do if it actually is something demonic. And so in those cases, in each case, I've said, I want you to remember, I want you to read scriptures like this. And I would give them scriptures like the ones I've just shared with you. I want you to read that before you go to bed. I want you to remember that you belong to Jesus. Before you go to sleep at night, I want you to say, Jesus, I belong to you. Holy Spirit, live inside of me. I remember that you're stronger than any of the forces of darkness. And I entrust my life to you tonight as I go to sleep. And then if something happens in the middle of the night, I want you to remember how strong Christ is compared to the darkness. And I want you to be able to say, I belong to Jesus in the name of Jesus Christ. Leave me alone, be gone. And what's interesting is in each of those cases, that's exactly what happened. What they found was that the, that the darkness dissipated. They no longer had problems with that after a few weeks or maybe a month. They no longer had problems with this anymore. And so greater is the one who's at work in you, scripture says, than the one that's at work in the world, than the dark side in the world. All right, when I think about this, again, there is simply no contest between the powers of demons and the power of Jesus. And, uh, and one of the thoughts that I've had, and I, I think I've shared this in a sermon before, but but in, uh, I think it was 1965, yeah, May 25th, 1965, Muhammad Ali was, uh, was battling Sonny Liston in a rematch for the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Uh, and, and in this fight, there was a lot of questions. Uh, Muhammad Ali had won the first one in a, in a split decision, I think in the eighth round, and nobody expected that. And some thought maybe he, you know, maybe Sonny Liston had thrown the fight. And so this next time around, there was a lot of people watching this to see what was gonna happen. And it was the first round, not the eighth round. And Muhammad Ali came out swinging and he landed a punch 
And you've seen this photograph before. It's perhaps the most famous photograph in all of sports. And there's Muhammad Ali standing on top of Sonny Liston. And you know what he was saying? Get up and fight, sucker. That's exactly what he said. Get up and fight, sucker. And when I look at that picture, put it back up if you would. When I look at that picture, you know, I, I see the power of Christ over the power of the demons. And there's just simply no contest. No contest. Knocked out in the first round. And that leads us to be able to recognize why, why David in Psalm 23 says this, that even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkest valley is literally what it says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with me. And if God is with me, he is infinitely stronger than the forces of darkness. All right, this last February, I took a group of 40 young adults to Kersey. So that's uh, Gergesa, the town I showed you on the map, Kersey. And, uh, and we were walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And, and when we came there, we stopped and, and there are on the hillsides. So this is sort of at the tail end of the Golan Heights and where the Golan Heights come into the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and there are uh, uh, caves that used to be tombs in the hillsides around there. And, uh, and there is this one particular place, the Kersey Archaeological Park. And it's where a monastery was built in the 400s marking this miracle. And so maybe this is exactly the place. And we climbed up the hillside and here's a picture of us on the hillside. And, uh, and so you can imagine up here, there was a building that was built at the top and there's a cave up at the top, maybe a tomb. And then you can imagine those swine rushing head first, you know, headlong down uh, this hillside. But I want you to see the next picture. The next picture is where we sat together. If you'll go ahead and put it up on the screen. It's where we sat together in the ruins of this old monastery in this church. And there's 40 young adults. And while we were sitting there, I read this story to them. And as we talked about it, we talked about the power of darkness and the power of the demons, and this man who was controlled by the demons. But we also talked about, and so we talked about how Christ has infinitely more, infinitely more power than the demons. We don't have to be afraid. But then we also recognize that, that as he is described in the gospels, it also sounds like somebody who's struggling with mental illness. And you know, one of the things I appreciate about our young adults, our, you know, our millennials and, and uh, Gen Z today is that they're willing to talk about mental illness in a way that my generation and the generations before us didn't talk about it. Mental illness has always been around. And I think back, my great aunt told me about my grandmother who had taken her own life when my mom was 16 years old. My grandmother took her life and my great, -grand or my great aunt said to me, her sister said to me, you know, if people were only willing to talk about these things, then your grandmother would still be alive. And this is a huge issue when it comes to mental health is the ability to destigmatize and to talk about what we're feeling, to talk about the struggles we have and to not be embarrassed or ashamed and then to be able to seek help and to come alongside each other and to help one another. And so as we sat there, we sat there for about 30 minutes and I just broke them into small groups and I said, you know, I'd like for you to talk about this. What, you know, about mental illness, about our own experiences with this. And, you know, pretty soon I looked around and there were people in tears as they were sitting there in the ruins of this old church thinking about Jesus who traveled two hours to find a man who was mentally ill Demon-possessed, mentally ill, they might be one and the same. They might be two sides of a coin. But in this particular case, to think about this man through the lens they were thinking about with mental illness and to think Jesus traveled two hours to find this one man who was living among the tombs, ostracized from his community because he wanted him to find mental health. He wanted him to be well. I was reading this week uh, several books and articles uh, that link together spirituality and, uh, and mental health and mental illness uh, one article actually was a lecture by Christopher C.H. Cook. He's a psychiatrist and a professor and a theologian and a priest in the Church of England. He's at Durham University. 
And he notes this, the story of the Gerasene demoniac stands out as being the only detailed account in the canonical gospels of Jesus' encounter with a person who may have been suffering from a major mental disorder. Now, I think it's likely that there were many other people that Jesus encountered who suffered from major mental disorders. I think Mary Magdalene was one of those. It was said that, that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. They may have been literal demons, but they may have been the kind of things we talk about as demons. You know, those demons that have to do with depression or anxiety or, or bipolar disorder, or they might've been eating disorders or, 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 or alcoholism or some other kind of addiction. But you know, the voices that are in our heads speaking to us. But Jesus, I think regularly was coming along healing people's souls. That's what he did. He healed their bodies, but he also healed their souls. We hear this man's mental anguish in his howls at night. And remember, he's howling day and night, which means he was not sleeping very much. And this is true for many people who are struggling with mental health and mental illness is the lack of sleep. And he seems to be howling both day and night, the scripture says, suffering from insomnia. He probably had hallucinations, you know, when he was shouting, when he was howling, he's trying to hurt himself. So we think of people cutting themselves. He was trying to cut himself or hurt himself with stones. And all of this was made worse. By the way, he's speaking, you know, to, to people who aren't there. He, he speaks in voices people don't recognize. I mean, the whole thing is just a picture of what we see in mental health and mental illness, severe mental illness today. He lives in the tombs and he's homeless and he's naked. Now, again, Professor Cook in the Bible and mental health, he has a chapter in this book. He offers a survey of pastors, scholars, and medical professionals and their opinions on this story about the Gerasene demoniac. Pastor Leslie Weatherhead thought he suffered, thought this man suffered from a childhood trauma, which could be consistent with a diagnosis of shattered or multiple personality disorder. Others suggested that he was manic depressive. Some suggested that he was schizophrenic. Cook himself suggests he had a dissociative identity disorder, possibly informed by a post-traumatic stress. I began to wonder in living among the tombs, is it possible that he lost a child or lost a wife and a child or lost an entire family? I think about one man who wrote a very famous hymn who lost his entire family in a, in a, in a, when, his, when their boat sank at sea, their, their uh, steamer sank at sea. And he wrote this powerful hymn that we all love to sing. It is well with my soul, but he struggled with mental illness the rest of his life after the loss that he'd experienced of his family. Maybe it was the kind of voices that, that you've heard, I, I've heard at times in my life, you know, voices of self-doubt or voices saying, you know, why, you know, why is there any reason for you to keep going? Or, or voices that say that you're not worthy or that you're unloved or that you're too guilty or that you're too messed up for anybody really to love you. I mean, all the kind of voices that we hear at various times in our lives. And I'm guessing you heard all those voices. When we talk about legion, the legion of demons, I think they all you know, had some specific place in his life, the demon of guilt, the demon of affliction, the demon of, of addiction, the demons of, 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 uh, of sorrow and grief and whatever the rest of them were, self-doubt, demons calling him to suicide. And these voices, we all hear them at some point in our lives. These voices try to make us afraid. They try to, they try to capture us. They try to make us, you know, to lead us to live in bondage, losing the joy. And sometimes at their very worst, they scream, there's no reason for you to keep going. Just end it now. These are the demonic voices that we often wrestle with in our own lives. And our brain is our central processing unit. When we recognize that, we program it. Other people program it. We program it from the time we're little. We program it by the sights and sounds and experiences that we have. And you know, often the tapes that play from our childhood, if they're not healthy tapes, if they're not tapes that said that we were loved, they were tapes that made us feel like we weren't loved. Or we had to try really hard to get our parents to love us or whatever those might be in your life. Maybe it was tapes of abuse or experiences of abuse. Those things also program our brains. And of course, our brain is another part of our body. It's, it's like any other organ in our body. You know, it, it can be exhausted by not having enough sleep. 
And, and that leads us, to, leads us to hear voices or leads us to see things in a certain way or to begin to feel a certain way. Uh, sometimes it's, it's using toxins, putting toxins in our body. It might be the food that we eat or maybe alcohol or some kind of drugs or something else. And we're consuming too much of this. In case of illicit drugs, we shouldn't be consuming any of it or, or prescription medications. And all of these things can have, a, have an impact on our physiology and our brain and our mental health and wellness. It's interesting thinking about how often people struggle with these things. You know, there are some of us who can say at any given time in our lives, well, that's not me. I don't struggle with these things. Great, good for you. But it's interesting that there are researchers who were looking at this. A pair of researchers writing in Scientific American in 2017 said this, new research from our laboratory and from others around the world suggest mental illnesses are so common that almost everyone will develop at least one diagnosable mental disorder at some point in their life. They conclude the article by saying mental health concerns may be nearly universal. As a result, society should begin to view mental illnesses like bone breaks, kidney stones, or common colds as a part of the normal wear and tear of life. Right? And then to be able to seek help for those things. And I was thinking, you know, however, however well things are going right now for you, you know, it just takes a second. We talked about this last week. In just a moment, your entire life can be turned upside down. When you receive the phone call about the loss of a child, which happened this week for somebody in our congregation or, or you know, a family member who's decided they, they no longer want to be around you anymore, the loss of a job or whatever. And many of us are two tragedies away from going insane, I think, or at least from severe mental illness, just two tragedies, tragedies away for most of us, which is why we have to find where is our strength when we're walking through the dark places in life? How do we withstand the onslaught of the evil one or the devil? And this is where in the, in the epistles of Paul, he talks about the, the weapons that we use, you know, and the protective, you know, things that God has given to us to guard against the wiles of the devil or the darkness or the voices in our head. All right, let's take a look at what happens next. When those who tended the pigs saw what happened, they ran away and told the story in the city and the countryside. People came to see what happened. They came to see Jesus. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully dressed, and listen, completely sane. They were filled with awe. Tragically, they also were terrified of the fact that those pigs had all been destroyed and they were concerned about the economic impact of having Jesus around in their community and they begged Jesus to leave. What a sad thing that Jesus had done such a miraculous demonstration of God's power and healing and the people begged Jesus to leave after that. But before we get to that, or really just as a, as a backdrop to that, I wanna think about what Jesus was doing, the healing that he'd done. And, and the, I think about the word uh, psyche, so psyche, from which we have the word psychiatrist and psychologist, the word psyche simply means soul. And iatros is the word for healing and ology is the word for study of or wisdom about. And so the psychiatrist and the psychologist, the psychologist wants to know the wisdom and the things that he can offer to be able to help somebody's soul be healed. And the psychiatrist wants to heal and does so sometimes through talk therapy, but often through medication. And these can be really, really important tools in bringing healing to people, but they're not the only tools. I love an old song that was sung by, uh, by a woman in, in the US. Uh, she's an American folk singer, Julie Miller. And she, uh, she sings a song about her new psychiatrist. She's tried a lot of others and now she's found the best. And she talks about how Jesus doesn't charge for the time that he listens. And, and in the scriptures, to be able to study the scriptures and hear the wisdom that he gives. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus takes the place of needing medication. There are times we need medication. Thank God for the researchers who are working in this area. Thank God for the psychologists and the psychiatrists who have devoted themselves to soul care and soul healing. But I'm going to suggest to you that those two fields alone are not enough and that there's another area 
one that's deeper in our soul still. And that's the area of faith and our trust in Jesus, where we find healing in our lives. This week, I asked Tom Langhofer, who heads up our resurrection recovery ministry, and Bobby Joe Reed, who has Healing House, which is a ministry for people coming out of prison, started for women and then for men, and people who've been homeless, people who've been addicts or prostitutes, and, and many of the people at Healing House are a part of Church of the Resurrection. I'm so proud of what God has done in their lives. They are a witness to this story, and, and, and same thing with resurrection recovery. And so they both asked a few people in their ministries, you know, in what ways do you see yourself in the story of the Gerasene demoniac or the Gergesene demoniac. And I received, I think it was five stories from people. I wish I had time to read each one of them. It'd take me another 30 or 40 minutes just to read them to you and tell you those stories. But they were so powerful. And as I was listening to these and hearing them, they each identified with this man and they talked about the things that they had wrestled with, addiction, self-harm, paranoia, mental illnesses, you know, voices that whispered that they were crazy and how they found themselves in such bondage and so you know, enslaved and entrapped by all of these things. And then somewhere along the way, now, you know, it was a variety of things. It was people who were willing to listen and treated them with respect and kindness and care like Bobby Joe and, and Tom and other people. It was sometimes their psychiatrist who prescribed medication that helped. It was sometimes a therapist who, who helped them work through the pain from their past. But somewhere for every one of them was Jesus who stepped out of his boat into the place of the tombs where they were living and helped them find that they had value and worth, that God knew them and loved them that they were treasured by God and to be, begin to see their lives and the world differently. And after their encounters with Jesus, it wasn't always instantaneous. Sometimes it took a period of years, usually months, whereas they daily surrendered their lives to Christ as they daily said, Jesus, save me, rescue me. I, I wanna follow you. I wanna trust in you. As they came to know what Jesus taught, what he did, how he laid down his life for them, how he forgave sins, how he taught us the depth of God's love for us. As they began to trust in Christ, he began to change them by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. It wasn't just faith. Sometimes it was faith and therapy. Sometimes it was faith and friends. Sometimes it was faith and pharmaceuticals. But underneath all of that, the common denominator for each of these stories was the power of Jesus to save and rescue people that others saw as hopeless causes. That's what we're meant to see in this story. And the reason why I chose this story is because in this revival, I wanted to end by inviting you to wholly trust in Christ, to regardless of the voices you hear, and maybe you're so mentally well, you're just doing great. And you know what? Sometimes when we're mentally doing well and great, underneath there is spiritual pride and narcissism and other things that plague us as well. But if not now, at some point in the future, you're gonna need to know that there's a God who came to us in Jesus and he knows your name and your story and he loves you and he wants to set you free of the things that will en 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 enslave you and harm you or make you less than the person that God wanted you to be. And really our response is Jesus, save me. Jesus, rescue me. Jesus, let me walk with you. Jesus, I'm yours. I wanna encourage you in this series of sermons, each one of them was about answering Jesus' call to step into, to allow him to step into our boats, to get out of our boat and to follow him to go fishing for people, to in the midst of the storms in our lives, to trust that he really is, that he is, and that we don't have to be afraid and to once more trust in him and cry out to keep our eyes focused on him when we step out of the boat into the waters and when we need his help to cry out, Lord, reach out our hand, rescue me. And then finally, to remember the kind of God that he is who came to us to say, I see you, I love you, I care about you, and I can set you free. I have the power to set you free. Now, the story ends in this way. 
Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is asked to leave that area. And the man who had been liberated by Jesus comes to him. And this is what we read. Uh, he, he's begging Jesus to go with him. Please let me go with you. Let me go on the boat with you, with your disciples. And this is strange, but Jesus does something interesting here. This is what he says, return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. In other words, go home and fish for people. And in Mark's gospel, we read that the man went away and began to proclaim in the 10 cities. So this is a huge region in the Holy Land on the, on the most of it on the Eastern side of the Jordan. That man went away and began to proclaim in the 10 cities, all that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And that's what you're called to do too, to fish for people, to tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus still seeks out the broken, the oppressed, the afflicted, the addicted. He cares for you. He loves you. He sees you as worthy of God's love and grace. And he longs to forgive you, to heal you, to walk with you, to work in you, to transform you. If only you'll say yes. That's my invitation for you today. All right. I want to pray for you now. And then I want to give you a further invitation. So would you stick with me for a minute? And those of you at our location, stick with me for a minute. And, uh, and I'd like for us to pray together. And I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes wherever you are. And I want you to remember the depth of God's love for you in Jesus. I want you to picture that Jesus has come just for you today, whether you're watching on TV, online, across the country, around the world, in one of our locations. Jesus has come for you. He sees all the brokenness in you. He knows the voices that you wrestle with and the voices you listen to. He knows. And he loves you still. And he offers you grace and mercy and meaning and purpose. And he offers to work in you to bring healing through you and to you. And I simply want you to whisper these words to Jesus. Yes, Jesus. I need you. I accept your grace and mercy. Save me, O Lord. Heal me. Renew me. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in your holy name, amen. Okay, here's the last part of the sermon, and I didn't want you to miss this. But this week was vacation Bible camp. That's why I got my Hawaiian shirt on and, and at all of our locations. We had 1,552 children who were part of vacation Bible camp. It was awesome. We had 508 volunteers who made that possible. And I was thinking about that. And today I want to ask you three things. These are three specific invitations for you in response to today's message. The first one is if you live in the greater Kansas City area, you, uh, you are not a part of one of our locations. Now I'm speaking to the locations and all of you at, on TV and online. Uh, if you have children or grandchildren in Kansas City, I'd like for you to take them. I'd like for you to get them involved in a community of faith at one of our area locations. There's six locations here in Kansas City, but I'd like to invite you to say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of the boat of my living room watching on front of the, in front of the TV or online, and I'm going to bring my children or grandchildren to church. I'm going to tell you why in a second. Second, I'd like to invite you to volunteer to help with children's Sunday school or with youth group in the fall. So right now is when we're recruiting all of our teachers and you know what? The only way we could with 1,552 children help them know about how much Jesus loves them and how he's always with them and he forgives them and he has a mission for their lives was because we had 508 volunteers who said, I'll help. 
One of the greatest investments you can make to change the world is to invest in children's ministries. And I wanna invite you today to do that. At the locations, your location pastor will tell you more about how to do this. I wanna share with you this information. In 2018, Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health released the results of a study that found, listen carefully, many children are raised religiously and our study shows that this can powerfully affect their health behaviors, their mental health, and overall happiness and well-being. Participating in spiritual practices during childhood and adolescence may be a protective factor for a range of health and well-being outcomes in early childhood. These are not necessarily people who go to church. This isn't out of the seminary. This is out of the School of Public Health at Harvard saying, Having kids in communities, in Sunday school, in vacation Bible school, in youth group has a positive outcome, have positive outcomes on their mental health years later, on their sense of well-being, on their sense, positive sense of identity and their sense of mission. And the report continues, reported uh, that, that kids, children and youth who were involved in, in the spiritual life in community reported greater life satisfaction and positivity in their 20s, were less likely to subsequently have depressive symptoms, smoke, use illicit drugs, or have sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, this is important. These things, you know, getting involved, have, you know, being a part of a faith community matters. It doesn't mean that, that you're never going to struggle with mental health. It just means it helps. It's a huge factor in helping people live lives that are free. And that's exactly what today's message was all about. Bring your kids to Sunday school or to youth group. Volunteer to serve, whether you're a grandparent, your parent, or maybe you don't have kids of your own, but you're an aunt or uncle or who would just like to pour into the lives of other people and encourage them. You can sign up today. You can go to court.org slash next and you can find out how you can sign up and say, I'll help with Sunday school this fall. I'll help with youth group this fall. We need you. There are kids who need you. All right. Finally, I want to remind you in August and September, we're kicking off a capital campaign here at Church of the Resurrection at all of our locations called Generation to Generation, in which we are going to be looking at at every location, how can we improve our facilities to better minister to children and youth? Our aim is to make sure that we are a place where children and youth come and we have the right facilities and the right volunteers and the right programs so that their lives have a chance to be positively impacted for Christ and by Christ in the church and so next month in August, we're going to be inviting leaders at every one of our locations to come to advanced commitment gatherings. And if you're a leader or if you consider yourself a leader, if you get one of these invitations from me or you just want to show up or from our location pastor, or you just want to show up, everybody's invited next month in the month of August to our advanced commitment gatherings. And you're going to see the drawings. You're going to hear what we're going to do and why we're doing it. And then for the rest of us in September, we're going to spend several weeks in September talking about, you know, here's the ways that we can have an impact on the generations yet to come. This is an opportunity for all of us. All right, the last thing I wanna say is that this week we did something pretty amazing at Vacation Bible Camp, our children did. So we had asked them to contribute crayons and Play-Doh for children in Kansas City at our partner schools. And our goal was to collect something like 500 uh, cray boxes of crayons, 500 you know, uh, uh, containers of Play-Doh. These kids collected something like 2,200 containers of Play-Doh and 2,700 uh, cartons of crayons for right here in Kansas City. Then we invited them to contribute and our goal was that they might give $10,000 to be able to start a reading program in Medici and Malawi in the outlying small communities. This is where you provided uh, uh, lights last year, uh, solar lights for families. So in this community among the poorest in the world, what we're gonna do is we're gonna provide a reading program. We have the bookmobile here in Kansas City. This is uh, on motorcycles and on these motorcycles, there are big boxes in the back and they're gonna have, these are like you know, 
pretty primitive, primitive dirt bikes, but they're going to be able to have on the back books that they can take in the surrounding countryside so children have a chance to have their own books and to read. I wanted you to see a few pictures of this, and, uh, and you'll see them here on the screen. These are some children in Medici, and I just love the picture of them. And this is at night, and you can see they have light. And the reason why they have light is because you provided lights for their homes last year, solar lighting kits. Uh, these, you can see one of these solar light kits up here at the top, and this is a family of children who are reading stories in their own language. And then I love this picture of this little guy and, and the books that he has there. And I'm not even sure what that is that he has, he has in his hands, but from this community. And, you know, so our children provided not $10,000, but $15,000 to support literacy efforts for these children in that community. And I'm so proud of our kids. So I want to ask you to do something now. Last year, you provided for 4,000 households solar lighting kits so that people could actually have light to read at night. 60% of the people in the rural villages in Malawi cannot read or write. And so the people in that community have asked for a grant. They wanted a grant to help us, you know, to provide the books and the, and the books, you know, uh, bike, what was it? Books on bikes, something like that. Um, but they also said what would be really great is if we had a library for grownups and a small community center where people could have classes on how to read and write. It's gonna cost $40,000 to do that. And that's a pretty small sum of money. And what I'd like to invite you to do today is to consider whether you might give to provide for a library and a community center for literacy classes for grownups in Medici, Malawi. Levon and I are gonna give the first thousand dollars. So we're gonna give a thousand dollars to this. You might give $10 or a hundred dollars, or maybe you could give a thousand dollars too, but I think we should be able to knock this out. And I'd love to tell you next Sunday, you know what? We raised enough to build the literacy center and the library in Medici, Malawi. You can go to core.org slash give. And there, if you'll scroll down from the, not the top, but the second category of giving, you'll see VBC missions. And I'd like to invite you to be able to contribute to this mission today. Let's continue now to worship God. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.